0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi everyone, Dan Amander here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. (laughs) The following question refers to section 8.1 of the 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Western Michigan University medical student and CardioNerds intern, Shivani Reddy, answered first by Brigham and Women's Medicine Resident and Director of CardioNerds Internship, Dr. Gurleen Kaur, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Pratiti Kazani, an Associate Professor and Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiologist at the University of Colorado. She was an undergraduate at Duke University as a BN Duke scholar. She spent two years at the NIH in the lab of Dr. Anthony Fauci and completed a dual MD-MPH program at Duke Medical School. When she started residency, she thought she was going to be an ID doctor, but she fell in love with cardiology at Stanford, where she was an intern, resident, and then chief resident. She went back to Duke for her general cardiology and advanced heart failure transplant fellowships, as well as research training at the DCRI. Dr. Kazani joined the University of Colorado in 2015 as a health services clinician researcher with a focus on improving health equity and bioethics in advanced heart failure care. She mentors medical students, residents, and fellows, and is a faculty mentor for the University of Colorado Cardiology Fellows House of Cards Mentoring Group. She has research funding from the NIH, NHLBI K23, NIH Ethics Grant, and Ludeman Center for Women's Health Research. Dr. Kazani is an author of the 2022 ACC AHA HFSA Heart Failure Guidelines, the 2021 HFSA Universal Definition of Heart Failure, and multiple scientific statements. Dr. Kazani, it is an honor to have you with us here tonight.
1: Oh, the honor's all mine. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. I have to say you guys have elevated my cool factor with my children. They've simultaneously now think that I'm somehow famous and that nerds are cool. So mission accomplished in my household. So shout out to Risha and Kavya out there.
0: All right. Shivai, I heard you have a question for us.
1: Thank you, Mike.
2: Yeah, so today our patient is a 64-year-old woman with a history of chronic systolic heart failure, secondary to non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with an LVEF of 15-20%, to status post-dual-chamber ICD, who presents for routine follow-up. She reports several months of progressive fatigue, and peripheral edema. She's been hospitalized twice in the past year with acute decompensated heart failure, and efforts to optimize guideline-directed medical therapy have been tempered by episodes of lightheadedness and hypotension. Her exam is notable for an elevated JVP, an S3 heart sound, and a 3x6 holosystolic murmur best heard at the apex with radiation to the axilla. Labs show sodium of 130, creatinine of 1.8 for 1.1 six months prior. An nt P at 1,200. Additionally, EKG in the clinic shows sinus rhythm and a nonspecific IVCD with QRS of 116 milliseconds. Her most recent TTE shows biventricular dilation with LVEF of 15 to 20%, moderate functional mitral regurgitation, moderate functional tricuspid regurgitation, and an estimated right ventricular systolic pressure of 40. What is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Refer to EP for upgrade to CRTD. D. Increase the Cubitrol Balsartan dose. C. Refer for advanced therapies evaluation. Or D. Start treatment with milrinone infusion. Gurleen,
3: can you help us out with this question here? Thank you so much, Shivani. So in this case, the correct answer is C. Refer for advanced therapies evaluation. Our patient here has multiple signs and symptoms of advanced heart failure, including NYHA class 3 to 4 functional status, persistently elevated natriuretic peptides, severely reduced LVEF, evidence of end-organ dysfunction, multiple hospitalizations for acute decompensated heart failure, edema despite escalating doses of diuretics, as well as progressive intolerance to GDMT. Importantly, the 2018 European Society of Cardiology revised the definition of advanced heart failure with a focus on refractory symptoms rather than cardiac function and more clearly acknowledges that advanced heart failure can occur in patients without severely reduced LVEF, such as in those patients with isolated RV dysfunction, uncorrectable valvular or congenital heart disease, and in patients with preserved and mildly reduced LVEF. In such patients with advanced heart failure, when it's consistent with the patient's goals of care, timely referral for heart failure specialty care is recommended to review heart failure management and assess suitability for advanced heart failure therapies. These include LVADs, cardiac transplantation, palliative care, and palliative inotropes. And the 2022 AHA, ACCH, FSA guidelines have a class 1 level of evidence CLD recommendation for this. Clinical indicators of advanced heart failure should prompt a possible referral to an advanced heart failure specialist, and these clinical indicators can be remembered by the I Need Help acronym. The acronym stands for I for IV inotropes, N for NYHA class 3B to 4 or persistently elevated natriuretic peptides, E for end organ dysfunction, the next E for ejection fraction less than 35%, D for defibrillator shocks, H for hospitalizations more than one in the past year, E for edema despite escalating diuretics, L for low systolic blood pressure less than 90 or high heart rate, P for prognostic medication or progressive intolerance or down titration of GDMT. In this patient, it would not be appropriate to refer to EP for CRTD upgrade, as this is a class 3 recommendation, level of evidence BR, in patients with QRS that's less than 120 milliseconds, which is the case for our patient, which will have no benefit in terms of the CRTD upgrade. Increasing the dose of Sacubitril Valsartan would also not be appropriate in our patient because it would be unlikely to tolerate a higher dose given her complaints of lightheadedness and episodes of hypotension. And then finally, initiating treatment with IV inotropes would also not be appropriate in this setting for our patient. Although the use of IV inotropes is a class 1 recommendation, level of evidence BNR in the current guidelines for the treatment of cardiogenic shock, the patient described in our question stem does not meet clinical criteria for cardiogenic shock. So the main takeaway from this question is that clinical indicators for advanced heart failure can be remembered by the I Need Help acronym and that there is a class one level of evidence C recommendation for these patients to be referred to heart failure specialists for further management and assessment for advanced therapies when consistent with the patient's goals of care. Dr. Kazani, I would like to turn it over to you to hear your thoughts about this patient and learn about when to refer for advanced heart failure therapies, what this evaluation entails, as well as the role of palliative specialists, and if you could also touch upon considerations for special populations like women and underrepresented racial and ethnic groups who are more likely to get late referrals to advanced heart failure.
1: Thank you so much for that great case, Drs. Reddy and Cor. I wanted to comment on a few thoughts about this issue. So one of the main differences in this most recent 2022 ACC, AHA, HFSA heart failure guidelines was that we really tried to emphasize the need for early and timely referral of patients with worsening heart failure and advanced heart failure to advanced heart failure centers. And one of the things that we did differently is that it became one of the top 10 in the guidelines. So if you look at the heart failure guidelines, All the newest guidelines have a top 10. So, those are the top 10 things that the authors believe you should really come away from the guidelines with and really remember. And one of them is the need for timely and appropriate referral for advanced heart failure. And the reason it's important is if we don't have patients referred upstream, they'll never have the chance at potential life saving therapies. So it's become such an important topic that we actually authored a separate scientific statement through the American Heart Association entitled The Timely and Appropriate Referral for Patients with Advanced Heart Failure. I was the vice chair for that statement. Alana Morris was the chair, and Dr. Mark Drasner was my co-vice chair, along with a group of experts. And we outlined some of the reasons why patients should be referred. I Need Help was part of that, but we also included other issues. And we wanted to emphasize the fact that we can do a lot more in advanced heart failure centers than just simply evaluating patients for transplant or LVAD. So some of the things that we can do at advanced heart failure centers, which is really nicely outlined in that scientific statement that came out in 2021 in circulation, was We can look at patients and decide if they need help with advanced directives, assess their heart failure etiology, and figure out if there's anything that's potentially reversible, look at heart failure and comorbidity management, so things like self-care, psychosocial needs, uptitrating guideline-directed medical therapy, financial and insurance needs. We can look at prognosis and functional capacity through CPX, so cardiopulmonary exercise stress testing and other things. And there's also other additional therapeutic options that we can look at that can be done at a number of different centers, but we can do it in a multidisciplinary approach, looking at things like PA, pressure sensors, valvular interventions if people need them, pharmacologic and catheter based therapies to control for arrhythmias, outpatient use of IV inotropes. And then obviously, we also look at things like heart transplantation and LVED. The other thing that we have available. After a patient is referred, is part of our multidisciplinary team involves a collaborative care with palliative and hospice specialists. And this is an integral piece of advanced heart failure care that often gets ignored. We often think about what we can do for patients, what kind of intervention we can do. Sometimes patients are not candidates, good medical candidates, or for other reasons they may not be candidates for heart replacement therapies, namely heart transplant or LVAD. And so we really Really, do need to do concomitant palliative care evaluation and counseling, as well as eventual plans for potential hospice if patients need it. I think a lot of times patients feel like going towards something aggressive like heart transplant or LVAD is the brave thing to do, but sometimes pursuing palliative care and fighting for peace and fighting for comfort, it can be just as brave. And it's important to counsel patients on the different therapies that we have available, one of which is potentially focusing more on continued palliative care and then potentially hospice. The other piece that you brought up is a really important one and something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is the consideration for patients coming from special populations, namely women, underrepresented racial and ethnic minorities and other groups. And so what we found is that the advanced heart failure patient pathway is very complex. It starts upstream in the community. So you have to be one referred. And then once you're referred to an advanced heart failure center, we then go through a very complex evaluation, which involves both medical and psychosocial evaluation. What we've seen from those data that occur within an advanced heart failure center at the evaluation stage from looking at long-term registry data, it looks like the percentage of women and ethnic minorities who are evaluated is fairly low. We don't actually know the denominator of the total number of patients in the community who are suffering from end-stage heart failure that's just not captured well in administrative data in big data and it's something that a lot of groups are working on now but We do know that the percentages for use of LVADs and transplants and the evaluation for all these therapies is really low in these populations. And so one of the key steps now in order to improve equity in advanced heart failure care is to move upstream into the community and try to figure out how do we diagnose patients early? How do we improve access to care? How do we make sure that people are actually referred? If they even get primary care versus if they see a cardiologist at all, and then if they actually end up going to see a subspecialist. All of these things are very tricky, and they really do seem to originate very high upstream in the process. So I think the key is to start upstream and also focus on things like what Dr. Clyde Yancey says, which is prevention of disease in the first place. I am an advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist, but as I tell my patients, I don't want to have to be their doctor. I would have loved for them to have avoided advanced heart failure or heart failure of any sort in the first place. It's terrible to be a heart failure patient. and. If you say heart function, you can call it different things, but either way, it is a process, it is a syndrome that changes your life. And so we would try to avoid having patients move downstream. So I think some of it is focusing on prevention of disease early on, and then if and when people get disease making sure that they have access to different types of care, making sure that we are able to reach people and that they are not scared of receiving care because there is a lot of distrust in the medical community. And that's for true reasons that have occurred over time because there's a significant amount of structural racism and other issues that have happened in our country. So I think that's a really complex question to look at special populations as we call Call it. But I think if we move upstream, we can start working on some of that process. Within Advanced Heart Failure Center, some of my colleagues are doing some amazing work on looking at structural racism, unconscious bias, and trying to work on interventions that help reduce those sorts of biases in our system.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Kazani. It was so great to learn about what exactly the advanced heart failure evaluation entails and how it's so much more than just evaluation for transplant, as well as hearing about how it's important to move upstream in the care for heart failure to allow for more equity and how prevention also has a role moving forward when we think about and consider heart failure as a disease. And one other piece I will
1: add is that once patients get to an advanced heart failure center, we have a really steady way of evaluating patients for medical evaluations for transplant and LVAD. The psychosocial evaluation is widely variable around the country. My group and many others are looking at psychosocial evaluations for different types of transplantation. So including heart transplant, LVAD, kidney, liver transplant, etc. And what we've seen from these data is that the evaluation is widely variable around the country, among social workers, psychologists, etc. And that the cutoffs for how long patients need caregivers is widely variable. So one center may require two weeks of a 24-7 caregiver post implantation of an LVAD, whereas another center may require three months of 24-7 caregiving. And as you can see, that type of requirement can create real disparities in who gets these types of therapies. And so that is something that we need to work on in the future is trying to make things a little more even for people so that we're playing on an even playing field for some of these More subjective evaluations.
2: Carlene, thank you so much for sharing that awesome acronym for the clinical indicators of advanced heart failure, which I'll definitely turn back to whenever I need help with assessing for advanced heart failure in patients. And Dr. Kazani, thank you so much for this fabulous discussion on the role and components of advanced therapies evaluation for patients with advanced heart failure. Also, thank you so much for shedding light on how. Or where palliative care and hospice fit into the picture and for kind of helping us think about what we need to be doing
1: for some of the underrepresented groups like women and minorities. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here. I've always loved Cardia Nerds, and you guys are awesome. Keep up the good work.
0: Beep. Beep.